Good morning. Dwight, before you leave, I'm going to need a water. Can you do that for me? Thank you. Is that a cup of water? It says Daryl on it. So I should drink out of the other side. There's a cup of there's a used cup of water up here, Dwight. So I'm. It is so good to be with you. Um, Daryl, I want to thank you for the invitation uh, to be here and to um, be involved in the renewal and revival that's going to happen over these next couple of days. It was so incredibly wise for you to schedule this right on the Asbury outpouring. (laughs) I mean, that just shows to me as superintendent, you know what you're doing. And so um, I will tell you that I I told Daryl earlier, I said, maybe they're tired. Like maybe we should just say for the next three days we will just we'll just rest. But I will tell you, I'm, I know God is going to do some good things over the next uh, couple of days. I, I want to introduce you to um, my son. Uh, you already Jill already raised her hand, but this is Jill. So Jesse, come up here. So several years ago, when Jesse was born. Um, one of our friends spoke a word over us and said that Jesse is going to have a job to do in his life, and God will give him the strength to be able to do it. And so Jesse actually lived in Wilmore. It was just five months inside of Jill. <laughs> so <laughs> he may not have known that. Um, <laughs> In fact, our first position was an associate minister position at a church we were called to in Indiana. And as we were heading there, the pastor said, hey, just don't get pregnant. We're like, well, we need to tell you something. So we called Jesse our ambassador of joy. And so quite honestly, one of his jobs is just to bring joy. And so if you are down today, if you just need um, a high five or a hug, quite honestly, that is God's calling in his life. And God has used him in so many different ways, right? Right. You glad to be here? Yes. All right. Thank you. Go ahead and sit down. All right. I I want to... um, We're coming off of the Asbury um, outpouring. And I'll tell you, I'm so proud of how you have handled this as a church. Um, On that Wednesday when the outpouring began... uh, uh, we started hearing word that there had been all-night prayer that was going on. It, it hit that Thursday. We were, we were at uh, Fiddler on the Roof at Indiana University. And uh, so just enjoying that. And I'm getting texts from friends and others saying there's something happening. And there was something inside of me that felt this pull. Like, I need, I need to go down. And so um, a pastor friend in, in the Wabash Conference that's underneath me, he said, John, do you want to go? So we brought five people down on that Friday before it got really, you know, no parking. Um, and we just sat uh, in the back, and another pastor from Wabash had come and was sitting there. We had the opportunity to minister to up front, and we just looked at each other. And we said, this is, there's something bigger here than, than even when we were here and, and a day of revival would uh, break out. And it has just been remarkable to see what God has done and what he continues to do. I was reading an article this morning from Sanford University down in Alabama that it simply said in the article this morning, um, religious fervor has settled down. 
I'm like, oh, that's a terrible way to describe it. But Samford broke out this last weekend in a time of prayer and revival. And now, as they opened up the chapel last night, there, there was nobody uh, there. We entered into Lent on Wednesday. The time before Lent, do you know what that's called between Christmas and Lent? It's called ordinary time. And I kind of feel, even though we're in Lent, we may be entering into what we just simply call ordinary time right now. And don't get me wrong, I long to see if God is going to continue to bust out and work and and do just amazing things. There's so many different stories we could tell of, of churches that uh, gathered in uh, Indianapolis and in Spring Arbor. And, and, and last Saturday, one of our, um, uh, two of our churches in Bridgeport and Island, Illinois, whose young people were here for the Bible quiz <laughs> the weekend, which just happened to be on the weekend of the, when the outpouring broke out, our Bible quizzers were here, and they went back home. They had gone to Asbury just to experience it. And two 16-year-olds went to our pastor, and they said, we want to have a time of worship and prayer. And so he said, all right, Sunday night, you get the microphone, here's the guitar, and three hours of prayer and praise broke out at our Bridgeport and Island Church because our young people were just leading. There is this hunger that I know God is going to continue to feed, but I wonder if we're going to just enter into this ordinary time. Ordinary time is described that way because it's the days of counting, when when we really just kind of go through the life of Jesus. And even if the ordinary time continues for a while, you need to know God has a way of connecting dots that for most of our life just seem like a picture we can't really describe. God has a way of connecting the dots that for most of our life have a picture that we just can't describe. Will you forgive me just for a few moments of nostalgia? Okay? Um, I, I was on sabbatical in December and January and have just come off sabbatical. Daryl took care of things amazingly while I was gone. Yes, that's this long list of everything I needed to do once I got back. But he did a great job um, while I was gone. But in my life right now, I just want to testify to the goodness of God. God is connecting dots in my life that for years, even decades, I, 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 didn't see the, I couldn't see the pattern. I couldn't see what he was actually doing in my life. And especially for those of you who are young today, you need to know that what may seem like something random in your life, either a blessing or a curse, ultimately God uses all of those things for his good and, and to bless you. And I'm in this season, I just want to testify about that. I'm in this season where the dots are connecting. Um, in just remarkable, remarkable ways. I first came to Wilmore in, when I was about 15 years old, to come to the Ichthus Festival. And it falls or fell right around my birthday. And so every year after that, I was asked my parents if I could have one gift, I'd come to Wilmore in order to go to Ichthus. When I was wrestling with which, what, what college to attend, I had been deeply impacted by an evangelist by the name of Eddie Phillips, who's a free Methodist evangelist. His brother Hal was a free Methodist. You may or may not know those names. 
Hal was here during the 1970 revival. Eddie was here during 1972, but he was only here for one semester. At a very difficult time in my life growing up in Flint, Michigan, Eddie took me out to Taco Bell. And he said, I know you're angry, you're frustrated, you don't know what's going on in your life. Why don't you come plant a church with me? <laughs> he said, you can be my youth guy. So we planted a church in Swartz Creek, Michigan. And from Eddie's influence, I landed in 1988 just up the road for my freshman year here at Asbury. Walked into Vic Hamilton's class never realizing that a multiple-choice test could knock me to the floor. (laughs) Realizing I didn't know as much as I thought about the Old Testament. Asbury, for me, this time in Wilmore, was deeply meaningful for me. Walked across the street, met Art Brown. I still remember this, my first expression of, How can someone have a smile that wide? But genuine joy that just exuded uh, from art. I met my wife at Asbury. She had transferred in from Ohio University, and it's just an odd thing. Coming from Michigan, she from Ohio, for us to meet in Kentucky. I, I did train my kids every time we crossed into Ohio to say, what's that smell? But that's a Michigan, Ohio thing. We actually had our first kiss on the roof of the Wilmore Elementary School, but I'm not going to tell you the story. (laughs) My parents called me my junior year. They were in the midst of a divorce. They had walked with God, but they were the kind of people that always struggled to connect the holiness and discipleship of God with their everyday life. Dad struggled, mom struggled, and so... They called me my junior year. They said, we just, we, we can't afford to have you at Asbury. You need, you need to come home. They'd sold the house. They divided up all of their, their assets. We, they moved into an apartment. I didn't have a room. I was uh, on, um, I was the treasurer of our class. I was connected. I, we, Jill and I had just gotten together. And then my phone, the phone rang and said, you got to leave. So when I left, it felt like everything that was safe for me was being stripped away from me. And I know for many of you, it's just Wilmore. (laughs) It's just Asbury. I went to the University of Michigan in Flint. First semester there, professors taking us on with this word, starting a lecture like this. Let me tell you what's wrong with Jesus. And this was in a sociology class. Let me, let me tell you why there doesn't need to be a God in order for everything to exist. So from that, from, from Wilmore to that, was just this, this kind of dissonance in my life. And I struggled, but there were lessons for me at the University of Michigan that I could not have learned here. And even though it was just dots in my life... God eventually has, is connecting all of that. One of the lessons is this. There's no such thing as a holy city. There's just cities that God wants to send holy people to. And spread them out all throughout the land. 
Those of you who know enough about Flint, you know what an ecological disaster Flint has been. My own mother died of cancer. And we can't exactly connect it with the lead issue in our water, but I can tell you I looked up her house before she died, had some of the highest lead levels in Flint, Michigan. Jill and I eventually got married. We, I came back here to attend seminary while Jill worked in finance and advancement underneath uh, Dr. Fisco and Dr. Geyerson. Dr. Fisco now works for me. That's really strange. <laughs> it's, just, it's just strange. <laughs> I mowed the semicircle. <laughs> for years, I mowed that semicircle. I deeply connected with people from the town that I don't think would have happened had I just stayed and not gone to University of Michigan. We were a part of First Alliance in Lexington at that time. Jill grew up Christian Missionary Alliance. I grew up Free Methodist, and so we're kind of going back and forth. Do we go CMA? Do we go uh, Free Methodist? And I scheduled a meeting with Dr. Bauer, who has roots in both the CMA and the Free Methodist Church. And I just asked him, what do you think God might be saying? What should we do? He said, if you go CMA, you're going to have theological problems because you're not there where they are. You're not premillennialist and you believe women should be in ministry. (laughs) But if you go free Methodist, you need to know that we're small and ingrown. (laughs) And you may not have as many opportunities. So I figured God could open doors. But I can't live against my conscience. So we met with Dean Cook, and we became members here at the Wilmore Free Methodist Church. I mean, what a wonderful time, an amazing, an amazing time. We left here in 1997 to join a church in Anderson, Indiana on staff because of a five-minute conversation I had around a campfire in Michigan. God used a five-minute conversation to launch me on a trajectory that, of obedience for him. Here we are, 25 years later, serving as superintendent of Wabash Conference and superintendent of the New South Conference. You're just going to have to give me a minute, because God's connecting dots for me. In February, I spoke at the um, pastor-spouse retreat for the Southern Michigan Conference. Went back to Flint for the first time in 15, 20 years to a little city called Frankenmuth, Michigan, German town, if any of you know what that is. And there in the, in the seats were, were youth leaders I had. Um, the, the youth leader that took me to Ichthus for the first time. The friend that I rode on the back of a snowmobile with that crashed. And so God was connecting all of this. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, i got to go to Wilmore and preach in a few weeks. <laughs> and then the revival, the, the outpouring broke out and and there, just sitting in that um, auditorium, Hughes has always been a, a, a thin place for me. I just was reminded of the tenderness and kindness of God. And that's what we're going to talk about these next couple of days. If you're not too wore out, if you're not too tired, I'm going to be here. I think Daryl will be here. And we're just going to be here for the next couple of days to hear what the Lord might want to say. But I watched you. I watched, Daryl, how you handled the stress of all of this. And I think as a church on the hill, so to speak, when it's not really your thing, it was their thing, 
You did, the, you did one of the best things you could possibly do. You just said, open-handedly, we'll serve. I think you worked security, didn't you? And I, I came last Sunday after coming from Gallatin from a church, uh, a free Methodist church, and watched Dwight just load people into the van to just take them down. You served. And so some of you prayed, and some of you gave up unwilling your, your parking spots. You served. <laughs> I'm so proud of you because hospitality, it costs us something. It always costs us something. And to host God's presence and to host um, people from all over the place, including crazy people, um, is just a powerful thing for you to do. Over the next couple of days, we're going to just talk about the invitation of God the open-armed invitation of God that he gives to us. That God has revealed himself as a God of invitation. So in Revelation 22, you have these words, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This just one verse of summary at the end of our scriptures speaks to the heart of God, a God of invitation arms open wide. Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isaiah 55, come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Isaiah chapter 1, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Joel 2, even now, declares the Lord, return or come back to me with all of your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Would you just come and reason with me, even at the beginning, as Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes. And the Lord God, you hear the sound, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the, the invitational heart of God simply says, where are you? Where are you? It's clear we have this, this God of invitation, a God of bidding, a God of calling, a God of of summoning. It is his very heart. He is the wooing God. And the amazing thing is that God uses us to call others to him who are either not yet a part of his kingdom or don't fully understand what it means to be clothed in his kingdom. So you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, We are Christ's ambassadors as if God himself is making his appeal through us. God is bidding and calling and summoning and requesting and wooing and asking, and he's using us to appeal to people. It's Can you just for a moment appreciate the sheer absurdity of that? If I can use that word respectfully of the Lord. The remarkable implications of an almighty God who makes an appeal rather than a demand. 
knocks on a door rather than kicks it down. The meekness and gentleness, and we're going to talk about his kindness in a few days. I mean, what does it say about the very nature and character of God who calls out requests and invites and then even sends his son as a grand invitation letter to people? What does that say about his very nature, even speaking against coercion instead of invitation? Because I like coercion. (laughs) We can get things done through coercion. But it may not be the heart of God. So we're going to look at those things. The invitational heart of God over the next couple of days. Looking at what it means to be invited to community from isolation tonight. To reality from fantasy. From kindness away from cruelty. To faith from stagnation. That's that's where we're going. And if the Lord directs us in a different way, it's his kingdom. And so we'll say yes, right? So this morning, we just simply begin with this invitation to the wedding banquet in Matthew chapter 22. This is the parable of the wedding banquet that Jesus shares. The parables, as you know, they always have a twist, right? They have, the, they have a point of incongruity, a surprise, a, a point of surprise is often the point of the parable. And often we need to understand the culture of the time in order to fully get the incongruity, though remarkably the parables have lasted throughout the years precisely because from culture to culture they still surprise. It's amazing how wise Jesus was in his teaching. So this twist, what do you mean the Samaritan was the good neighbor? What do you mean the father ran to the prodigal? What do you mean that we were feeding you and clothing you when we were serving the least of these? Dare I apply it? What do you mean we were, we were giving you fresh water in Flint, Michigan when we addressed the issue? So it is with this parable. I mean, what's surprising in this parable that Dr. Bauer read? I mean, the parable is simple. A king is throwing a wedding party for his son. The king's subjects refuse to attend. Instead, they kill the messengers. The the king sends his messengers to the streets and, and fills the party with all kinds of strange people that don't seem to belong. There's one guy who isn't dressed in his wedding clothes, and so he's thrown out, and that's the parable. (laughs) So what's surprising? We're going to go like five minutes late, just so you already know that. What is incongruent? First, that people, particularly the king's subjects, would refuse an invitation to such a joyous occasion as the king's son's banquet. Why would you ever refuse such an invitation? What is it about the priorities of their lives that caused them to miss the invitation of the king? Another incongruity that even after a second appeal, some people decided that their own personal business and their own affairs and their own parking spots were more important than the invitation to the wedding banquet. I have stuff to do. The party wasn't on their radar, wasn't on their agenda. I mean, again, how did they miss it? This is the king. 
or even further, that these same subjects would seize and mistreat and even kill the very servants sent to announce the good invitation of the king. What did they misunderstand about the king that caused them to respond in such a way and think it was okay? The king is enraged and his army destroys these men, burns their cities. By the way, these were the cities of the king, too, that he burned. And then there's more surprises. The king begins inviting anyone on the street that that his servants can find people, anyone, really, good or bad, Jesus says. Worthy or not, well-known or known, were gathered to his banquet. The same parable told in a different way in Luke is told upon the heels when Jesus says, when you give a party, don't invite your friends and family. Go instead, invite the crippled and the broken and the poor, and they can't repay you. And then he tells this parable. What kind of banquet is this, is this tension? Do you, do you feel the tension? What kind of a banquet is this? This is, this is not a banquet you would put on the front cover of Us magazine. I mean, these are people from, dare I say, every tribe, every nation, every language. (laughs) A great multitude, no one can count. And then there's this this kind of surprise of this hodgepodge. There's this one person that's found by the king who's not wearing wedding clothes. He's, He's taken the time to be there, but not the time to change. So he's driven out. There's this tension between all being invited, but not everyone dressing to change for the banquet. So you feel, these are these tensions. Who, who, would, who would say no to such a great invitation? What kind of king throws open his banquet to weird street people? And what possesses someone to say yes to an invitation, but not feel they actually have to do anything? From Jesus' own lips is the greatest tension This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The church is a part of the kingdom of heaven. It is not equal to the kingdom of heaven. For you math people, the symbol would be the equal but greater than symbol. The kingdom is equal to but greater than the church. My kingdom is an invitational kingdom, it seems God seems to be saying, particularly to the most unlikely. My kingdom is an invitational kingdom to which the most likely people will probably say no. The busy people will say no. And my kingdom is a party that's open to all, but one in which you need to have full engagement once you're there. Tom Wright, Dr. Wright, in Lent for Everyone, he said this. He said, God's wedding party has been thrown open to all and sundry to Gentiles as well as Jews, as Paul never tired of insisting. That doesn't mean that once you've accepted the invitation, you can carry on as though it wasn't God's wedding party. All are welcome, but you have to dress appropriately. In every parable, whether it's the prodigal son or the sheep, the goats, the sower parables, we tend to ask the question, where am I in this parable? 
I've found that it often depends on where I am in life. <laughs> As to who I am. And, and most often I've found myself to be so many different people in the parable, right? I've been the prodigal. I've been the father looking for the son. I've been the oldie, older grumpy brother complaining about my prodigal brother and sisters. Here, we, we've been those people who are invited but too busy. We've all been that. Too self-focused to respond. We often live our lives, I believe, in the presumed absence of God's presence. In fact, I think one of the greatest definitions of sin is simply wherever in our life we have not invited the presence of God. And that can be any area. We've been those servants who are carrying the amazing message of God's invitation, only to find that the very one who stirs our heart is just dull in the eyes of other people. We've seen our Lord mocked and ridiculed and misunderstood and rejected for reasons we can't understand. We've been those messengers. And some of us have friends and family who have been the messengers who have been killed. I give uh, oversight to our Churches in Bangladesh, we have about 50 churches, 5,000 people. I'm going to be heading there in a couple weeks at the invitation of Bishop Joel Blahara again. We haven't been there since the beginning of COVID. And I can tell you, every time I go, our pastors there start receiving texts from people in the community that say, you're going to die in seven days, you're going to die in six days, you're going to die in five days. My very presence there puts them in more danger than them doing the gospel. But they still say, would you come, John? So mid-April, I'll be there Easter. I had to ask Jill's permission. Can I go to Bangladesh? We have friends who have suffered like the death of the messengers. We've even been the mistressed guest, the hypocrites who, for whatever reason, as James writes, we praise our Lord and the Father with the same tongue. We curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. We've been those people. We've been all of these people. And our temptation, I'm landing the plane. You don't know me yet, but it's coming. Our temptation is to read and hear the parable through the wor- these words of who am I? But Jesus' point is, let me tell you what God's like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Therefore, this is what God is like. The party-throwing, sun-focused, inviting king who says, Come on. I want to meet you. I don't care what you've done, who you are, where you come from. Would you come? And it's not come to Wilmore. Thank the Lord, right? That's maybe past. It's not even come to church. It's, it's come to me, come and celebrate. There's something deeply impactful in the human heart and in its experience, in a, an actual experience that says, come. Now, I know many of us are heady. You know, we, we are Wesleyan. We believe in the quadrilateral or the, the what's five? Quintilateral? Uh, Dr. Schneider reminded us that nature is a part of experience, reason, tradition, and and, and scripture. So we are people who see through those minds, but folks, the vast majority of us just need to know experientially that we personally are invited. I need to know I'm included too. I'm wanted. I'm invited. I'm cherished. I'm seen. 
I'm known. Many of you know the story of John Wesley's heart strangely warmed. Just a remarkable story. In January, Jill and I got to go to England and do the Wesley tour and got to see where John Wesley knelt down in his room, where he prayed. I've got a picture of where he was praying. Got to see his house, got to go, see, go to Epworth and see his home and hear the remarkable story of Susanna and her, her prayer life and all of these things. And I, I'll tell you, more and more and more, I just got convinced I like Charles better. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a geeky Wesley joke, I know, but I, it is... Um, we got to go to Charles's home Ooh, and see the instruments and, and just think about how this man um, sang the praises and glories of God and wrote them so that we could sing them too. Charles left Georgia before John did. Burned out, tired. He, he, he had traveled with John over here. He particularly had a heart for prisoners, but it just didn't seem to connect here. He went home, and he was so frustrated and so just disgusted even by his own heart that he, he became an invalid. In 1735, about 1738, he became an invalid. He just lay in a bed. Depression took over him. His body just seemed to be decaying away. It was 1738 when Charles moved in with a person he called a poor, ignorant mechanic. We all need some of those. Named William Bray. He saw in William Bray a spirit, even though his lack of education, a man who had a real and living relationship with the Savior. Charles is laying in bed ill, but he sought God for peace that he saw within his mechanic friend, uh, William Bray. And it was in May of 1738 that Charles and his group began studying Lutheran's commentary on the Galatians. And as Charles is reading this in his society meeting, one of the members, William Holland, is dramatically converted. And a few days later, then Charles finds peace himself in the words of Paul, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Charles says, that's me too. Charles calls this his day of deliverance. It was May 21st of 1738. And two days later, he wrote these words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. The Oxford-trained missionary who deeply heart as an Anglican had never really known me too. (laughs) Me too. He died for me who caused his pain. And the remarkable thing is right after that, two days later, you may know this story, Charles went and visited a prison. And he asked the guards, can I stay with the prisoners who are going to die at the gallows tomorrow? And the the guards said, sure. So he and a buddy, they spent the night, all night long, in the prison cells with the the people who were going to die on the gallows the next day. They sang to them, they preached to them, they told them about the grace and the goodness of God. And then as they're marching to the gallows, these men accepted Christ, the invitation to be a part of the kingdom. Charles is riding with them in the wagon as they're going to be hung. And this is what they later said. These men were cheerful, full of comfort and peace and triumph. 
assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them and now was waiting to receive them into his paradise. And then they hung and died. And you'll get to meet them in the kingdom of heaven. The invitation is open. The invitation of God is to you too. It'd probably be good to sing that hymn if we have time. Who, yes. Yes.